We're here today with someone who I respect highly, and it's our member of parliament, Michael Couteau for Don Valley East. And he is someone who has done it all. He has had, he's been a trustee, a member of provincial parliament, cabinet minister, and now our sitting federal member. And so the question I wanna ask him is, what is the one thing that has been the common threat through it all? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. Um, I watched a couple of the shows. It's a great show. You're doing a great job you. and you should be very proud. Um, you know, it's it, people ask me like, you know, Michael, you know, how did you keep going? You know, you've switched, you know, you've switched uh, three different levels of government uh, or at least, uh, you know, three different branches of government. You know, I've uh, worked in the not-for-profit sector, um, ran for leadership. I would say like there's two ingredients I think that have kind of kept me going and it's obviously, you know, uh, my family, um, my wife and uh, my kids and just being supportive. If you don't have that support at home, it's, it's really difficult to move forward. And the second thing is, you know, I always ask myself like in anything I'm doing, like what is my anchor point? And what I mean by that is like, what is the thing that no matter what you throw at me, that's unbudgeable? Like what, what am I, uh, what am I there for? You know, when I was the Minister of Children and Youth Services, it was, you know, I, I fought and people would say, Michael, this ministry is really just bad news, you know, always. And I said, well, you know, what if my anchor point was, we will do everything we can to make it good news, like give young people the opportunities and remove those barriers so that they can uh, they can move forward or with the Pan Am Games, you know, that we're doing it to, you know, to uh, to strengthen athleticism and health for young people and build infrastructure in that foundation in this province. Once you kind of have your purpose and it anchors you, you can do anything. But if you don't have that in what you're doing, chances are you're not going to be successful. And that's kind of like the two things that have kept me going. That's really awesome. So would you do me a favor? And I mean, you have had such an illustrious career and you've done so many things. Would you mind kind of in your own words, who is Michael Couteau? Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I guess we're always learning who we are as we move along. But, you know, I just turned 50 years old. And uh, so I've had a lot of time to think about that question. Woohoo, 50. Yeah, uh, That's the 50. New 30. Yeah, I... Uh, you know, I got elected when I was around uh, 30 years old, 29, 30. I started getting involved and running and then I got elected. So it's been a long journey for me. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, what would define me uh, would be, you know, the things that, you know, I'm interested in, um, the interests I have, uh, where my, my free time goes. You know, I'm, uh, I came from England and uh, my father's Grenadian. My mother's, you know, was British or is British. Uh, and uh, I would say that I'm a combination of, um, you know, parts of those cultures growing up in Canada since I was like four and a half years old. Um, but I think what's defined me the most is my time I spent uh, growing up until about 25 uh, in Flemington Park um, with so many different cultures. And uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, I'm not here to judge people. I'm not here to um, 
you know, to, 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 uh, to put people into boxes, let people be who they are. That's, that's not my job to do that. But what my job is, is to look for ways to, you know, to better the world around me. And Flemington Park was a place that was 16 years old, actually. And um, I don't know if I ever told you this story. I've told this story so many times. So uh, I sometimes feel like I've just, I'm on constant repeat, but I was about 16 years old and there was a pool in our backyard uh, in the buildings we, we lived in. It's Seven Rochford Drive, and it was a community pool, and the fence was open. It was just uh, going from winter to spring, and the water was getting a bit uh, mushy, and the kids were playing on the ice. And, you know, I said to them, you're going to fall through the ice because the pool was full. And, um, uh, you know, the kids were like, you know, they told me where to go. You know, I saw a couple of fingers. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I saw the superintendent later on, and I said, hey, you know, kids are going to fall. Someone's going to get hurt. Nothing happened. Called the management office a few days later. Nothing happened. Picked up the phone, uh, you know, used the white pages, found the MPP, phoned the MPP, wow. and in an hour, someone was out there fixing the pool. And I realized that, you know, if you care about your community and you could figure out, you know, the mechanism or the, you know, what could be used, the tool to actually get things done, you can actually do it. And to me, I think that kind of defined, you know, who I was. Like, there's problems in my community. The world could improve for people and uh, take that application of, uh, of knowing what tools to use and identifying the problem and finding solutions. And I think that really defines who I am. I've always my entire life looked for ways uh, to um, level the playing field, uh, to look for ways to provide opportunity. And if you look at anything I've done in politics, it's really been from that lens and mostly focused on young people who don't have you know, uh, a lot of opportunity presented to them because they're so busy just trying to figure out, you know, the current. Yeah. And I mean, I think you are a wonderful role model because, you know, growing up in Flemington and kind of, you know, like figuring out how to navigate a system that might not have yeah. been open. Like I, even now, as you say that, a lot of people I talk to are like talk about issues and it's like, well, maybe reach out to your member of parliament. Maybe it's an issue that you reach out to your member of provincial parliament. And people don't necessarily always think about right. that influence, right? And so elected officials make a difference. Elected officials with diverse backgrounds make a difference. And I think you have always been that voice that has always tried to elevate other voices. And so that's right. why... I'm really excited to to be able to talk to you about that because it gives an opportunity for people to understand, as you have been at three different branches of government, right. how people, like what you can do to help and how people yeah. can reach out, right? Yeah, and it's like, you know, the MPP or the trustee, they're, you know, the, the MP, they're kind of like links in the community. There's been, there's so many great organizations in, you know, in my community that do such great work, you know. I can remember when I was about 15 years old, um, my parents separated and uh, my mother was the superintendent of the building. Um, uh, and um, so this was, uh, this was a little bit before the story around the fence because we moved apartments from 105 to 110. And um, the owner of the building, or at least the manager said to my mom, um, you know, because she had to go find a job because my father left. She was only making a small amount of money. And I guess it included the apartment. But they said, we have to leave the apartment. We had to leave. And my mother was just in complete crisis mode. You know, my father left. You know, we were there, three boys with my mother. And she didn't have the financial means to do anything. And she, you know, they said, you have to leave. She went to the legal aid clinic. And, um, you know, they wrote a letter for her. And, uh, you know, and 
my mom brought it to the building and they backed away. They actually allowed her to take an, another apartment next door. Um, Were they asking her to leave the leave building? Leave the building because she was the superintendent and their rule was that the superintendent, you know, that was the apartment for the superintendent. So it was interesting. So years later, here I am, you know, as an MPP, you know, representing Flemington Park, uh, the same Flemington Park Legal Clinic. The name has changed just slightly. I think it's the Don Valley East Legal Clinic now or Don Valley Legal Clinic. So they brought me in and um, they asked me to speak and I told them that story and I thought to myself, you know, here I am as the MPP, you know, uh, working to support uh, a, an organization through, you know, budget allocations, uh, you know, being a representative to, to make sure that these organizations are healthy, but being also a direct, uh, someone who was directly impacted by, you know, the power of such an organization. Yeah. Many years ago, my mother, you know, my mother was in distress and this organization, you know, um, uh, provided my mother with some assistance and we got to stay in our apartment. You know, that's the power of uh, the investment into community, into the different groups that exist, because my mother didn't have the power to, to fight. Yeah. A lot of people like, you know, the world, like we talk about affordability. We talk about, you know, just, uh, you know, the migrant story, the, you know, we talk about people like challenges with mental health, you know, just someone in their family needing help. Sometimes we just don't have it in us. To, to fight. So, you know, we as a society have not only put together like, you know, these so, these programs like public education, healthcare, yeah. but we've also put these positions in place, you know, yeah. these organizations to help us. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty behind uh, being involved in politics and being able to identify problems. And uh, you don't have to be the one who figures out the solution. A smart politician is usually the one that listens and you know, takes that solution and applies yeah. it. But all my life, I've just identified problems through the through listening and uh, and also provided um, solutions through listening. And I think that's uh, also part of what makes uh, someone successful in this type of uh, you know this type of work they choose to do. No, and I think that's really you know eye opening and and really inspiring in the sense of listening is a powerful tool, right? Yeah. Um, so how did, like, I mean, I guess I wanted to take a quick moment, like, what was the moment that got you to run for trustee, right? Like, that's kind of your, was that your first foray into politics? No, or an elected? no. Okay. So, okay. So, you know, my parents separated. It was, I had a rough time at school. You know, I stopped going to school two or three times. I went to summer school every single summer. Uh, sometimes two credits. I went to night school twice. Um, I struggled with school. I think my literacy level, by the time I left uh, high school and I got into university with it, like a 61 and a half average, like it was, an, they had an open door policy at Carleton. Um, but I think my literacy level was probably grade nine, grade 10 when I got into university, to be honest. But I got in with like a 61.5 and it was like with, you know, uh, art, gym, you know, they were like, right. you know, not to undermine those, things, but I was pretty good at art. I was pretty good at gym. And, uh, you know, there's some history. I always loved history. I just listened to the stories and I could yeah. at least articulate those stories back. Um, but I got into university and uh, I think university and education saved my life. You know, there was, we were, we were, you know, five of us when my father's there in a two bedroom apartment in Flemington Park. Um, I went to go visit um, a friend at Carleton. I went to go visit a friend's uh, sister with my friend at Western and it opened my eyes. 
Like I couldn't believe the institutions that I was seeing. It, was ne- it never crossed my mind. It was never a conversation in my house once about going off to university. But when I saw that, I was like, why would I go into work, you know, right after high school when I could go for four years to a place where people are my age who are learning, you know, who are studying, who are socializing, they're yeah. building themselves. It's kind of like this buffer zone between, yeah, you totally. know, between finishing high school and starting real life hard yeah. work, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I got into university with that 61.5. I taught myself and with the help of some other people how to uh, study. I increased my literacy level drastically. I had, you know, a great professor, um, uh, uh, Professor uh, Duncan. Um, uh, you know, he was uh, incredible. He, uh, you know, he would say to me, you know, bring me everything uh, you, uh, you, you're going to hand into a, a professor beforehand and I'll sit down with you wow. and go through it. You know, there was uh, another uh, master student who helped me. And then my friend from Fleming and Park, the only guy who, who I knew went off to university. He was there in his second year with his girlfriend, with a, a one-year-old. So that was their situation. And I would bring my stuff to them and they would help me as well. So he said to me, my friend Robert Simon, good friend of mine, he said to me, he says, Michael, if you fail, you're going to go back to Flemington Park. He says, and what are you going to do? He says, the guys who are uh, here that you're hanging out with, you're having fun with, if they fail, they're going to go back to their father's business. So I, I kind of took school serious because I was afraid to go back to nothing. And I don't mean wow. nothing Fleming and Park. I mean, like, what were, my options were limited. So I actually started to study. I walked into the Liberal Party headquarters. Um, you know, I um, read a little bit about the different political parties, decided I was a liberal because of, uh, you know, the immigration policies. You remember 1967, 68, black people weren't allowed in the country. You know, so Trudeau changes that. And, uh, you know, I'm reading about this stuff. I'm like, OK, that kind of speaks to my values. So I decided I was a liberal, went to the uh, Liberal Party headquarters, asked how I could help. And uh, that was my entry into politics. Two, three years later, I was president of the Young Liberals. I was working for a minister uh, in the Kretchen government and I got exposure. But, you know, I was still very naive. I was still very um, inexperienced. You know, um, I can remember going to uh, these events at the Liberal Party, not knowing how to, like, use my knife and fork properly. Oh, I can relate to that. I can relate. uh, You know, it was a different world for me. And, you know, besides Greg Fergus, who was the president of the Young Liberals then, There was not one black person that I saw in that world. So it was a strange world for me. It was uncomfortable. Um, You know, I felt, um, you know, looking back and reflecting, I felt a bit of, um, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, just... um, uh, you know, subtle forms of racism that were presented in that in that world when I was young. And, you know, I didn't notice it at the time, but I reflect now and I think about that. Um, but I kept moving forward. I kept learning. I had good friends who taught me. I listened. I met my, you know, my girlfriend who became my wife, you know, started to build myself. And um, I got to a point where I was working in government and I realized that this was not the best option for me Um I actually moved away from the Liberal Party for about two, three years and was not involved, went to South Korea, came back and decided that I was going to run for a school board trustee. I thought I have no political connections, no relationships. Um, I can knock on every single door in this riding and at least try to convince people one to, you know, person to person that I could do the job. And uh, I didn't have the support of the school board trustee, who was Shelley Carroll at the time. I didn't have support <laughs> of David Kaplan. You know, wow. I didn't have support of the unions. I didn't have support of the local leadership. Yeah. Um, but I had four friends and we knocked on every single door, 45,000 doors. And we won that election. 
um, after spending six months knocking on doors and talking to people. And that was my entry point. I didn't expect to win, but we won. And uh, I haven't looked back since seven elections, you know, later. I know. And it's like seven zero. Yeah. You know? yeah, like, yeah. It's funny because, you know, you know, I'm going through there's going through a redistribution. I was yeah. thinking on my way here that, um, you know, I haven't lost an election. But the only thing that may, you know, end my career in politics is a is a boundary shift through legislation. Right. So um, it's so interesting. But I know, you know, I haven't regretted one single day in politics. It's been an incredible journey for me. And I've been able to do this for 20 years. And not many people have that opportunity to serve their community. Um, so I feel very privileged. If I if my job finished today, I would uh, I would still be very, very happy for the work that I've been able to do. Well, no, it's 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 so true. And I think that your community has stood behind you because of your hard work, like through and through. You've always, you know, get out there, knock on doors, talk to people, and you've always listened to people. And yeah. I think when people feel heard, it's not what you say to them. It's how you make them feel, right? Well, I, and I would say that, you know, from knocking on doors during Eve, the toughest election ever in 2018, um, when, uh, of course, the provincial Liberal Party lost uh, most of its seats. I think there were seven of us that won. Is it seven or eight? Seven. Seven. I know there's some really quick changes at the beginning, but seven of us... Um, I would hear at the door constantly that, you know, oh, Lori from your office is great. Oh, you know, Andrew from your office is great. You know, Peterson from your office is great. Those folks in the office who returned phone calls, who made the time to drive to someone's house to give them, you know, yeah. something that was signed that they needed. Those are the types of consistent, you know, relations you build in the community that actually, you know, we only won by a thousand votes. We went up against the deputy mayor of Toronto. Uh, we weren't expected to win. Even the polls had us losing. Um, but it was because of those relationships over the years that I think made the difference. So yes, in one way, you know, I was out there knocking on doors, but I really, really believe with all my heart that my staff at that office played a major role in, in winning that election by just over a thousand votes. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. That you, was you know, hard. some of these folks, you know, that, yeah. you know, these are, these are hardworking people. Oh yeah. They were on call all the time yeah. and they wanted to be yeah. right. Like yeah. it was like their heart was there. Yeah. Um, you know, even if we like, and, and that's the realities of pol politics, right? That it is how you get voted in and, and you can get voted out. And if there's a wave that you that's don't it. know, like that's what happened in 2018. But yeah. I think one thing that is a testament to you is your resilience, you know, and, and I think about all the different portfolios that you held, yeah. um, you know, and even your portfolio in the anti-racism, like anti-racism directorate, which was a first. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't exist right now. Yeah, well, there's, a, I think, a, a shadow of what, you know, existed. Uh, there is still, still some funding, and I think there's a, um, a department that's looking at that work, but it's nothing close to what it was when we were building it up. And, you know, we built the anti-racism strategy for Ontario and, you know, the legislation that mandated the uh, the collection of disaggregated race-based data. So those uh, pieces are not as um, uh, powerful today as they were when we were in office, but um, but there are some good things that are happening across the province, you know, um, and across the country. The federal government has created a secretariat uh, to look at these issues. You know, Stats Canada is uh, has now been asked to collect, uh, you know, th this type of data. School boards have moved forward, police departments, you know, 
you, you and I were involved in some work with Oria, you yeah. know, uh, incredible work in housing. And um, the, 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 I would say the gaps that exist between different cultural groups here in this city, in this province and this country. Um, so there's a lot of organizations now that take this work seriously. And, you know, before people would say, oh, you know, when you're doing anti-racism work, it's just to benefit, you know, um, you know, people who are impacted by racism. But I've always made the argument, and we've had these conversations before, that, you know, when you look for ways to eliminate um, these barriers that exist in our society, not only are you helping that individual, but indirectly you're benefiting society. You know, you're adding to the economy. Um, racism costs the economy billions of dollars of lost revenue every single year. Why wouldn't you want someone to have the financial means to buy a home, you know, to be able to invest into stocks, yeah. to, you know, to do things, to, you know, uh, better pr participate on boards? Yeah. You know, so there's um, there's a lot of great work that's come out of the work that we've been able to do and people in the past as well. Um, so I was really proud of that work. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to continue. And it's important that people who believe in this stuff continue uh, advocating for it. You, when you mentioned the piece about how racism costs all this money. Can you speak to what, how that would translate into dollars and cents? Well, I remember there was a report that came out by, I believe it was uh, Yace, um, an organization on the West End that does work with young people. They put out a report that looked at um, uh, the Jane and Finch community, for example, how much money is spent in incarcerating people from that neighborhood, um, how much money um, is spent on the judicial system yeah. and policing in that one neighborhood. And the number was astonishing. Like I'm talking tens of millions of dollars. Um, and not to stigmatize a community like that, um, but imagine if that money was being invested into the right type of programming, preventative programming. Imagine that money was being used to open up opportunity. Then you get almost like a, uh, you know, it's not the 75 million you're spending, but it's also what's the potential loss of earning. And you put those together, you know, that's when you're getting into the hundreds of millions of dollars in one community that, you know, can yeah. actually be used to generate even more uh positive impact in a community. But, you know, not only like I don't want to speak to uh, just, uh, you know, the um, the uh, policing and judicial impacts. But what about, you know, um, you know, for example, the Toronto District School Board, back when I moved a motion to start to collect desegregated race based data, myself and Bruce Davis uh, did that at the TDSB. Um, we knew that um, there was a problem in the community. And then we found out from the statistics that, you know, uh, black males, you know, it was 40% uh, plus, actually it was black students, 40% plus that were not graduating. Well, what, what does that mean? You know, how does this impact um, the Vietnamese community? How, you know, what were the, uh, the um, you know, the communities from, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, other parts of the world who were you know, perhaps newer. We, I remember uh, Portuguese communities being impacted in a different way. So all of these different statistics come yeah. in and we can then say, wait a minute, there's something happening here. And once you put in the right type of resources to get young people to graduate and increase those levels, you get more productivity because people are you know, yeah. becoming better skilled. And then you're actually looking uh, for, you know, you, you can start to see a positive impact. We don't have to rely on, you know, external help. We can actually maximize uh, the, uh, H, the human resource uh, potential we have here in this province. And it's a, it's a big problem today. Human resources uh, 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 skills uh, uh, short, um, I guess the um, 
the lack of these potential uh, uh, folks to go in and fill these uh, these gaps, it's a huge problem in some sectors. But we do have people yeah. here that if they had the right opportunity, uh, could actually go out there and uh, and and fill some of these gaps. But it's you're absolutely right in that sense because we have high rates of um, opportunities for employment, but yet people aren't going into these right. jobs, right? And why? What's that question? And I know that um, as one of the policy pieces was everybody should have the right to education. 100%. And because education is the tool. And when you talked about the piece of, I grew up in a family, we never talked about me going to university, but in your whole entire community, you knew one guy yeah. who was in school yeah. With a one-year-old kid. Like, yeah. you know, when you think about university students, they're not really having a family, right? Yeah. And to overcome that and to be like, hey, you know, um, and for you to have that drive to go, okay, no, I need to be in university. Yeah. And even that to have a professor to to help you, like, did you ask for help or how did this come about? Because I yeah. don't think that that naturally... It was, yeah, he was incredible. His name's actually, his first name is Duncan, but it's Duncan McDowell. And uh, he was a first year uh, history, Canadian history professor. And I, I just remember him like, you know, saying, Michael, you're a smart guy. Your writing's terrible. You know, uh, bring me your writing before you hand it in. Like to me, I don't I don't know if people do that still. Yeah. Um, but there's always been teachers uh, throughout my, um, you know, my career who've looked at me and said, Michael, you're actually smart. Like, stop, you know, acting like the fool. You know, stop, you know, like focus. And it's every report card you've ever seen that I've ever received, Michael needs to focus. And, um, you know, you get, you come across people uh, in life who are there, who help you. And, uh, you know, when I got to the Toronto District School Board, it was uh, Sheila Ward and Bruce Davis that helped me. Yeah. You know, they helped me. I knew nothing. And I got to the school board and they helped me. I could phone, you know, I still, I don't remember phone numbers, but I remember both their phone numbers because I called them every second day for advice. And, you know, you get people who help you in life and, um, you know, you just have to look for ways to uh, give back. In fact, uh, Robert, the guy who helped me, uh, who was from my neighborhood, said to me, I, he said, I'll help you always make me one promise. And I said, what's that? He goes, help one kid from our community. You know, and that was his like way of like, yeah. you know, in fact, he may have said two. Uh, he said, just give back a little more than you've received. And I've always kind of said that's, you know, that's the way it should be. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I have I feel like I've been very fortunate because I'm a daughter of immigrants who no one told me you have to go do this. Like yeah. when other kids had their parents traveling, crisscrossing across Canada to go check out university tours. I had to read about books and look it up myself yeah. or talk to my friends and to their parents. And it was not because my parents didn't want to, they just didn't know how. They, yeah, yeah. And they were like, I'm sorry, we don't know the system. Yeah. And so I think I'm very humble because every success that I've had is not mine alone. My success is because of the people who just were willing to give me a few extra moments of their time, who were just willing to take my call and answer my questions. And I'm super grateful for that because- yeah. Like, why? Why would anybody want to help? And I'm a big believer in terms of the work that I do to want to give back. And I think that's yeah. why I'm attracted to right. people like you right. and others who are like, yeah, let's let's do something. You just got to watch out for the haters because they're out there too, right? <laughs> the folks that don't want you to do well, you know, that will detract you, you know, that will take that energy. Yeah. You know, you've got to be careful on, you know, with who you work with and how you work with people because, you know, there, there, there's a lot of pros and cons out there. And, you know, Canada as a whole now, you're starting to see this, like these big divides in, you know, in um, 
even the very basic foundational values that we hold as Canadians, like, you know, public education, public health care. You know, so like we're starting to see like, you know, these these rifts that start to build between us. And I think, again, you know, going back to the anchor, you know, figure out what will hold you to, you know, to the ground, what you, you know, what you're actually, you know, anchored to and you will you will be unstoppable. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's so true. And it's 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 truth. Yeah. Right. I feel like doing politics now is very different. Yeah. Um, I think even like like COVID, something seems to have happened since yeah. COVID. But the environment that we're in is very different. And it seems like people are much more outspoken about things that they're angry about or you know. so interesting. You say that someone asked me today, how come you're not doing videos? Like, you know, videos, like, you know, Pierre Polyev is doing videos all the time. Like, you know, someone said, well, why are you doing, doing videos? Like, and I said to the person, you know, it is easy to make a video and capture frustration from people. You know, it's really hard to make a video and sell, um, you know, sell hope. You know, there's some people like Obama that were really, really good at it. But, you know, if you uh, put together a, um, you know, a new uh, proposal for, you know, an expansion in a hospital and you make a video about it, it's a good news story. Sure, you're going to get people saying, that's great. Nice, Michael. Great work. That's what we expect from you. But if you get a person speaking about, you know, something that's happening, you know, and you're not, you waited in the, you know, at the hospital for 10 hours and this happened. You say, well, wait a minute. That's bad. I don't like that. It gets people angry. And it seems like we're... As people, we're, we seem to, uh, you know, going through COVID, we seem to be frustrated. And it's a fair thing. Like, people are frustrated. You know, uh, people are frustrated. And that's that's okay. But when we tap into frustration to build a narrative uh, to, uh, to, you know, to attach that frustration to, to politics to build, there's something wrong with that. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being frustrated, but there is something wrong in building yourself politically based on those frustrations. And I think we need to figure out how we take those positives, those values, those anchor points, those foundational pieces. And really, and, and this is a big challenge for anyone who, you know, would consider themselves kind of in the center, you know, uh, or in government. How do you take all of that stuff and keep building and get people involved? Now, there's a lot of people who are involved, who believe in that stuff, who are attracted to that type of politics, uh, but the world has changed. Yeah, no, and I think you're very much on point on that because you hear it in the streets, you read it in the papers, and there's this division, and the narrative that is being created is not one of let's build better or let's have vision and hope, but it's really polarizing yeah. the differences and creating a friction or the wedge, right? And yeah. I that really concerns me because I believe that I've had all, a lot of my successes because I live in a country that put education, public education first, that allowed me not to have to worry that if I got hurt, I'd have to pull up my visa card before I got help. Right. And I lived in the States before and I know what that's like. And we have a system, an educational system that's much more equitable in the sense right. where all the money gets pulled together and gets redistributed. Yeah. Whereas in the States, if you live in a rich neighborhood, all the taxes that get collected go into that one neighborhood. Too. Yeah, without a question. I was uh, in Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago and my friend was saying to me, actually a week ago, my friend was saying on this side of the road, uh, the taxes are uh, twice as high because it's the good school. And if you're on this side of the road, uh, taxes are much lower because it's 
the not yeah. good school. Yeah. And the, the homes look exactly the same. It was very interesting to see that, you know, that, that, that difference. Well, I see that when people are trying to buy homes and right. they're like, is this a good, is, is this a good area? Is this a good school? And I'm like, our educational system is phenomenal. Like we were on track right. to rebuild it after all the massive cuts that had happened during the previous like legacy of conservatives. Right. And it, and all those like common sense cuts or anything, but it took time to rebuild. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, like it will change based on leadership. It will change based on, you know, who's in the school, but fundamentally everybody gets access to the same things. Right. And there isn't a better school or, you know, like those type of things. And so it's, 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 you know, I try to m tell people like when you look things up in Google, it doesn't tell you the full story because what's the community in the area? Right. There's no metrics behind it. Yeah. You need to know it. Right. Who, who's the leadership leadership changes that makes an impact. Right. And so I just feel like those are things I would love to continue to protect. Right. right exactly. To help people. We know that there are studies that show how someone does in grade one or two is very indicative of where they might go in the future. Yeah. And so even streaming in, in high school, right? If you get streamed into advanced or general, that it really yeah. shifts things up. That's, that's what happened. Like they, you know, and I say they meaning educators, they, you know, they suggested that I convert to all general credits when I was in grade eight. And you remember before we had advanced general <laughs> basic? Yeah. And I had to fight myself. My parents were like, well, that's okay. And I was like, no, because I knew that um, it would limit my options. So I always fought, like I had to fight the school. I had to fight, you know, the environment to like, it, to stay in it, the advance, even though yeah. I wasn't a very good student, like I refused to go. And that's why I did, I did grade 10 math, uh, you know, three times. You yeah. know, I took it one semester, the second semester, and then a summer school. Uh, so it was hard for me. I have a question to ask you since yeah. we were talking about homes. And uh, so obviously you're a real estate agent. Now in Toronto, is a good time to buy a home? I know it's yeah. kind of like an yeah. odd question from the middle of nowhere, but I think this is probably the number one question you get asked. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. I it's totally, a good time to buy a home? It's definitely a good time to buy a home if your finances allow for it, right. right? Because we know that historically, year over year, first, when you buy a home, when you pay into the mortgage, you're paying into yourself, Yeah. right? And and you're building equity over time. And so that's that's something that you can benefit from. And some, it's not good to buy a home and then try to sell it the next year. Right. But if you have a long-term plan to say, hey, okay, I'm going to live here for, you know, five years. Over time, you've paid down your debt, and you're paying into yourself. Yeah. But then the other thing is the value of your home will rise. Like right, right now, we've actually seen prices depreciate because interest rates what have gone up. What percentage have they depreciated in the city? Like 15, so, 20%? So, so this is a really good piece because a lot of the things that are in the news is very generic. They look at 20 to 30% across of homes have dropped. But you have to contextualize that in the sense of where, what area. Um, they're taking an average across all of Canada. Like, where are they coming up with their numbers? Yeah. I would say that in the Toronto GTA area, GTA area, condos have probably depreciated by ten to fifteen percent. Right. Right. Especially, and but the thing is, do we think it's going to depreciate more? Well, let's put something into context. We have a mandate to bring Im immigration so many levels. People, right. So the market demand is there. 
people are nervous right now. And the now. desire for home ownership is constantly there too, right? People totally. want to be in their own home. Yeah. And but the, on the flip side too, rent is so high. So right. why wouldn't you get a mortgage that you pay into yourself than to pay off someone else's yeah, mortgage? Yeah, I, I cannot believe the, you know, the affordability issue and the price like people are paying for rent is yeah. just astonishing to me. Well, I worry that it'll create a divide and you hear more and more the desperation, but you also hear about people who are tapping into their parents to yeah. help them buy. And, you know, the thing is, one thing I always say to people, buy what you can afford, but don't get stuck on it being a dream home. Yeah. Because you're not going to jump from renting to a complex four bedroom detached house. Like yeah. that might, unless you're making tons and tons of money, but what you could do is save as much as you can buy something that you can afford. Like maybe you say, you know what? I can afford a condo. Yeah. And as you live in that condo, you paying yourself. And, you know, do that for a few years to build some yeah. equity and then think of the next stage. And you save money too, right? Yeah. Like, I, you know, I remember when we did the Aurea, you know, research um, on, on housing and just uh, discrimination within the sector. And, you know, I, I remember us having a conversation, a large, uh, you know, the, the task force, uh, you know, around the Canadian dream. You know, home ownership is really, you know, for many people, for many families, some people are just not interested in owning a home and that's fine. But for many, I would say the majority of Canadians, that home ownership is uh, it fulfills something with inside of you. It makes yeah. you feel like, you know, I, I think my greatest memories are seeing my kids, you know, playing in the backyard with the water sprinkler on. And, you know, and even though the bank owned 90% of my home at the time, <laughs> it's still, you know, I knew I would, it would become realized eventually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I just wish, uh, you know, I wish more people could have that experience because it's, um, you know, it is, it is something that, you know, is part of, I think, reaching the Canadian dream. So well, I've been working with a lot of people who are like um, newcomers or who are like being transferred from another country. And they're like, okay, so we're, we're, we've got permanent residency. We're going to rent for a year, year and a half, and then we're going to buy. Right. And that's the common refrain I hear all the time. And I'm yeah. like, okay, that's great. What you have to do, save your money. Right. And, you know, try not to over leverage yourself, you know, but save your money. And that's the best thing you can do for yourself. Yeah. And one of the things that you and I, you know, we knew this like in theory, like, you know, just knowing the, the way the world works. But the study that we worked on in the Ontario, uh, Oria, Ontario Real Estate Association's uh, presidential advisory group on diversity, equity and inclusion was that racialized people um, were usually at a disadvantage of home ownership, yeah. but it wasn't always equal, right? Because culturally there are some cultures which put a value on, on home ownership. And so they would invest, like they would focus on that. And other cultures didn't grow up with home ownership. So that right. wasn't a priority. Yeah. Um, but then we also know about discriminate, like discrimination that happens, whether it's yeah. home renting or hearing about stories that, you know, a person couldn't sell their home. Bank loans, mortgages. Yeah, yeah, there was, I remember a lot of those pieces came up. Well, I just, uh, I hope that we can continue to build a city that offers people. And it goes back to our conversation right from the very beginning, opening opportunity for people yeah. so that they can fully participate and yeah. that they can go out there without barriers being thrown in front of them. 
to build for themselves. And I think it's the most important thing. And home ownership is just really, at the end of the day, a, re a result of, you yeah. know, everyone having equal opportunity to build themselves up. Yeah. And you're totally right. Um, you know, like in your, like all the different hats that you have been as a cabinet minister, as someone who has really advocated for a lot of um, projects and people and policies, what do you think are ways in which common people, the average person, can work to help? So I go into grade five classes all the time. It's my one of my the best things I do in my job, you know, for the civics component. And I always say to young people, you don't have to be the elected official. You don't have to join a political party. Uh, you don't have to even be eligible to vote. You know, you can be under 18 uh, to participate in politics. You need to, like, you know, make sure at the end of the day that these folks that you don't really know who are making all these decisions for you every single day, um, make sure you know that if they're making a decision for you and you don't like it, that you actually speak up. It can be sending a letter. It could be picking up the phone, making a phone call, asking your parents to do yeah. it, you know, um, you know, talking to your neighbors about it. Don't let people make decisions for you um, blindly. Yeah, because, like you've been a fighter. Yeah, yeah. Don't like, you know, why should I just have the luxury of making decisions of, you know, for, you know, that impact your life um, without, you know, uh, you having the opportunity to tell me, you know, how you feel about it. And, you know, I don't want to uh, spend too much time on redistribution, but, you know, what happened in my community recently, while, you know, the map has been adjusted, so Don Valley East, the riding, uh, no longer exists in that in that uh, in the in the boundaries it was in before. But the process that the uh, federal boundary commission put in place was that they put a proposal forward, they had people comment on it, and then they listened to those voices and then put out a final report that was drastically different from what they originally proposed. So my community didn't have the chance to actually weigh in. So, they didn't even you know, know about it. No one knew about it. So for me, um, the most important thing is that, you know, people have should always maintain the right to speak to, you know, the policy decision by government and by people who make decisions on behalf of government. So, you know, I'm going to be out there, uh, you know, mobilizing, talking to people, making sure that they understand at the end of the day that their voice does matter and I'm going to point them to the right direction. I'm going to capture their voices and I get, you know, I get five minutes in front of a committee. It's not a lot of time, but I get to present a case and hopefully, you know, uh, something will, some recommendation will come out of that uh, to at least give them an opportunity to sit, to have their say. So, I mean, in terms of the redistribution, because it's being cut up into three different like it's parceled out into three Correct. different areas. Don segmented. Valley North, Don Don Valley South, and Scarborough centered Don Valley East. Yeah. So it's being it's being yeah chopped into three pieces. And I mean, you've been out talking to people, your constituents. What are yeah. they saying? How do I they feel? I was in a room, two hundred plus people, a few days ago. Uh, in a room, it was Thursday Thursday night. Um, uh, we had it at the IBEW on Lawrence. And I asked the question, is there anyone who disagrees with what people are saying here today? Because everyone was, you know, saying this is not fair. This is about process, due process, consultation. We need to be heard. There was not one person who stood up in that room. And we had the, 
you know, this was a nonpartisan thing. We had representatives, the president of the Progressive Conservative Party that was there, you know, the president of the Liberal Party, the past candidate for the NDP. Wow. Yeah. They were all there and we're all on the same page. It was a nonpartisan position that was taking place. There was, you know, this wasn't about, you know, what was best for the candidate or a particular party. This was about what is best for this community today. Yeah. And uh, when you see that happening in politics, it's actually a beautiful thing when everyone's on the same page, regardless of what political party you're in. Yeah. So how do you harness that power? Like those 20 people, 200, over 200 people. Well, you get them activated and you get them to share the information, the community to go out there and talk about it. You know, let people know because the commission did not uh, present any type of proposal that reflected anything to what they've what they actually finalized at the end you know we need to go out there and let people know what's taking place so the awareness is number one uh number two um we need to uh make sure that uh the voices are are captured you know so the awareness um uh, and that includes an education piece uh the uh we need people to uh be able to uh, capture their voice and we need to package that and present it to a committee called the PROC committee. Um, that is a procedure committee at the House of Commons and they make a recommendation to the Federal Boundary Commission before the Federal uh, Boundary Commission submits their uh, their final, final report. It's a lot of stress on community members and on you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, there's a lot of stress. Um, you know, the, the Don Valley East has been a riding since 1976. Um, yeah. You know, it's a riding that has been very successful in, you know, bringing people together. And, um, you know, they are a community. Uh, they've been part of North York for over 100 years. That Victoria Park boundary is a significant boundary. Um, there are villages in my community, Victoria Village, yeah. uh, Parkwoods Village, uh, um, Donalda, Don Mills, uh, you know, Bramanzi, all these little villages, and uh, they've been together for quite some time. They're essentially dividing the Don Mills community. And, yeah, uh, that's big. And then even more troubling for me, my community, Flemington Park, you know, which doesn't have, you know, the massive ratepayers association that they can take, you know, folks to court and they don't have, you know, the same type of representation that maybe a community like Leaside would have or, you know, other communities. This community has been moved in 10 years. They've been moved three times. And, you know, this is a community with a with a new subway station. Um, there are over 100 uh, high rises going up in the Don Mills corridor. Good for the real estate <laughs> sector, yeah, yeah. you know, challenging for our community locally. Um, but to take a community like that and then in 2015, you know, uh, uh, move them from Don Valley West to uh, to Don Valley East and then again now move them to a new riding, you know, that's problematic. Um, it's like, you know, it's like the community is being kicked around like a ball. And well, it's not, I, I, it's not good. Well, how much of it is that people thought, oh, this is a a community without a lot of capital, if one yeah. would say that, you know, like who who are we going to who's going to make a fuss? Who's going to take us to court? In that well, sort and of I thing, think that you know? they've uh, they've made a, an error um, because it is a community that uh, is very vocal. They have really strong leadership in that yeah. community. And it's not a community that's going to just sit there and allow a process to take place without their voice being heard. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. Like to, to have that and to recognize one's agency that, no, we're going to come together. And that comes through leadership saying, no, we're going to do something about it. Yeah. Um, 
you shared one of your favorite quotes with me. Yes. Fortune favors the bold. Yeah. It's actually one of my favorite too. That's so. pretty cool. You know that, and I like the, um, it, I think it's an old Roman quote, um, but there's another Roman quote. I believe it's Roman um, that uh, uh, life is short and death is long. And I think it's a cool quote because it kind of those two quotes and they're kind of morbid and, you know, seem a bit aggressive, like, you know, fortunes for the bold. But I think for me, what it says is that, you know, we've got this short period on this planet, this this little it is a short period. And the things that um, matter most to you should matter most to you. The things that are important to you, uh, they're important to you for a reason. We get this little glimpse or, you know, our children grow up so quickly uh, we have to remember that, that we get this little tiny, this little tiny dot in the dictionary of life, right? You know, and um, that's it. And um, if we're not bold, you know, and think about, you know, well, why can't I go to university? Why can't I run for, you know, school board trustee? You know, uh, why can't, you know, why can't I do that? Like, as long as we, you know, we break away from being afraid or being or having society kind of places into our, our spot. You know, I think that's an important thing. And that's why I like those quotes. Um, what's your favorite quote besides this one? Um, be the change you want to see in the world. Yep. That's great. By Mahatma Gandhi, because I think that is the intentionality of why are we here anyways? Yeah. Right. Like if we talk about the things that we want, we have to do it. And we have to encompass it and be it. And so it is a guiding principle for me. And which is why this has been such a passion project for me, because I'm like, just back to the story of I am where I am because of so many people who have helped me get here. Right. But I'm like, I love telling stories. And it's like, what other way but to share and celebrate all those people who have provided me advice and guidance and support in so many unseen ways. Right. Like, and I'm always deeply appreciative of that. And so you know, this passion project wouldn't be what it is now. I think it's pretty cool. People. You know, I know that, you, of course, you're involved in real estate. You serve on boards. Uh, you teach. You've put your name on the ballot. You know, yeah. to do this is a beautiful extension into, you know, sharing your experiences in life. And uh, I wish you all the best. You're the best, Michael. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. No, thanks for having me. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to end on? Um, uh, just, you know, at the end of the day, um, I would say the same message I, I say to those grade five uh, students uh, that I go see is that, you know, your voice does matter. Um, you don't let people speak on your behalf blindly. And everything we do in this world, every step we take, uh, it's sounding like a song, every move we make. <laughs> but everything we do is, is governed by political decisions. Yeah. You know, uh, when I go into a classroom, I say, pick any object. They'll say a cup. And I said, well, let's think of 15 things that, you know, politics influences in the creation of this cup from, you know, the importing, the taxes for resale, what products being used, how it's made, you know, is it registered? Like there's so many things that impact us every single day that are made from people in these private rooms, you know, at, in the House of Commons, at the school board, at yeah. the Ontario legislature. Don't let people make decisions for you blindly. You have a voice, use it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. You're the best. Ha, ha, ha.